Scott. Yes, Adam. Technology hates me and I hate it. Coming to you almost live from the Sydney Opera House, this is The Unknown Studio. I'm Scott. I'm Adam. We are your dapper, classy hosts. It's true, and we've got a very exciting show for you today. Jam-packed with content. Bursting at the seams. As you know, uh, or as you don't know, but I'm about to tell you, (laughs) uh, we've got an interview with Stephen Hodges, one of the organizers of the Calgary Expo, and he's going to tell us all about what's taking place a few weekends from the time of this recording. Yes, due to the tragic magic of the internet. It is possible you will listen to this episode well after the Calgary Comic Expo is done, and you will just get to hear about all the stuff that you will have missed. Sadness. And Scott is speaking with an associate producer, yes. Yes. From Canada's Worst Driver. They're going to be in town coming up. There might still be time to nominate someone you know. That's all I'm going to say. You'll have to wait and listen. That's very exciting. And uh, that's not the thing we're most excited about. Oh, tell. The, no. The thing we're most excited about is not a thing at all. Can you believe I remembered all that? <laughs> it, it is a person and it is a man named John Astacio, who's a world famous composer joining us in the studio today. Hello, boys. Hi, John. Pleasure to be here. It's so fantastic to have you because uh, we've, we've, we've known each other a few months now and I'm still trying to understand what you do. And he decided he wanted to learn more about what you do in a public forum. <laughs> before the the great unwashed masses of the internet. So what do you do? Well, sometimes I wonder too. I, like, um, I, I confuse myself. But essentially, uh, at the core of things, I, I write music the old-fashioned way uh, with pencil and paper, and, um, and I scribble it out, and I give it to musicians to perform live, and it gets performed live in concert halls. or. Now, when you say you create music... Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you mean like notes on lines. That's right. Do you also write words to go with those notes on lines? Uh, no, I'm I, I'm not a good wordsmith. Um, <clears throat> yeah, cat and hat are is the extent of my rhyming uh, technique. And that's only because he saw my cat moments <laughs> wearing ago. A yes. Wearing a hat. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, a lovely little chapeau. Very strange. <laughs> um, uh, no, I, I usually uh, set other people's words, uh, especially when it comes to an opera. Uh, opera, it's it's like a hundred pages of text uh, sometimes, and uh, it's it's a it's a, it has to be a good strong piece of theater. And I'm not a playwright, and so I would much rather work with somebody who has the experience and the knowledge. So an opera will actually start with text first. Yeah, <clears throat> we've uh, written three operas. Um, oh, I've written three operas with my partner John Morell, uh, writing partner, and. Uh, he uh, generally starts up with the idea. We have uh, characters in mind, a story, a uh, plot. Uh, we know where all the high points are, the low points, et cetera, throughout the story. Uh, but he will sit down and type it out first. Really? Yeah, well, we'll hash it out. We might storyboard it, if you will, and uh, break it down scene by scene. <clears throat> but then uh, John Morrell has to go off and uh, sit at his keyboard and type it out, and then we'll, we'll meet, and actually, uh, be, we'll do some workshopping, and, and before there's even a note of music written for the singers, uh, we work with actors first. Really? Yeah, we get together, and uh, they read the pages, and we sit around a table, and then uh, after we've done that a little bit, they'll get up on, on their feet, and our uh, director will 
sort of put it in 3D, if you will. They'll walk around with pages in hand. They don't have to memorize it. But we get the sense of, of the theater, of it, the drama, and whether or not it's going to work as a dramatic piece. And does that help you to sort of assess the, the tone and feeling that, that, that your piece is, is supposed to bring into it? Yeah, it, it informs a lot. Uh, and is that a fair characterization? It's supposed to bring tone in? Like, <laughs> what's, what's the role of music in an opera at all? <clears throat> well, I mean, the music, the music should tell the story itself. I mean, if you take out uh, the words, hopefully the music is going to convey a little bit of what's going on or most of what's going on. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the, uh, the perfect marriage, of course, is when the words is there. I mean, I, I want the words to be there. I want the words to be heard. But the music really drives the, the narrative and, and, and drives the piece. Um, but before we get to that point, I want to make sure that dramatically it's it sound as well. And so that's why we, we get together and save some time and save some effort, and we, we just work with ac- actors first. So <clears throat> when your partner writes the, the dialogue for this, is it like... Um, you know, a movie script kind of thing, or is it is it written in rhyme? Uh, is it written, written in English? It's written in English. Okay. Yeah, except if if we have some scenes happening in, in a foreign place, we might use the the, the language of the uh, the country. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it reads a little bit like a play, but it does rhyme. You know, really? yeah. So it's closer to Shakespeare perhaps than Tennessee Williams or something like that. Yeah. Um, but there are uh, couplets and rhymes and stuff like that, and, and we work on that as well because uh, uh, that that seems to be something that works really well in, in music, obviously. Okay, so now when I hear opera, because I'm not so refined as all that, as we all know, um, I'm thinking fat ladies and Viking hats. And I know that's not a fair characterization <laughs> of probably contemporary <laughs> opera. So what does it look like on stage? Can you give us an example of some of the stuff that you've written? Is it set in the streets of Edmonton in modern day? Uh, <clears throat> my second opera actually has some scenes that, that are meant to take place in, in, in the north of Alberta, and it's sort of like a little cabin uh, on the lake. Um, but no, I mean, my, my most recent opera was set in 1928 in Vancouver. Okay. Uh, uh, and New York, and, and across Canada, actually. And um, it also is set in 1980 in northern British Columbia. It's, it goes back and forth between the, the 80s and the, and the 20s. Cool. And, uh, and uh, visually, the first thing that you see when the curtain goes up is a little pickup truck in the middle of the stage. And it's an actual Toyota pickup truck that we got and ripped the engine out and, and made it friendly for the stage. <laughs> and, and there it is. Uh, and it's being loaded up with boxes and um, because... Uh, a, a son is moving his mother to an assisted living home from northern British Columbia, probably into Vancouver, and uh, and that's where, how the piece starts. So it's 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 important to me that uh, whatever I work on uh, for the opera stage that I have has sense of relevance to to modern day audiences. Yeah, uh, you know it, it, the fact that it's set in 1927 is it, is a material, but it, the, the, it's an important. We felt it was an important story that still. Uh, would communicate with us today in, in the in the 21st century. Well, and theoretically, a classic opera would have been written at a time when it would have been contemporary to the people listening to it for the first time, too. That's right. Yeah. So it makes sense. Yeah, it follows. And, yeah, and the, and the real strong ones have, have stood the test of time, and, and we still hear them today, and we still find uh, aspects of them that are, are quite relevant. There, there might be some aspects that don't work, but uh, with, under, with a good director, you can f- bring those out. And in... 150 years, we will meet back on the podcast. Yeah. We will do a follow-up and see if your works have stood the test of time. <laughs> Isn't that the dream, though? Like, I mean, well, for me, I'm trying to think of, like, 
there's this impulse as humans to want to make an indelible mark on something. History. Sometimes it's history or culture. Is that part of in the back of your mind? Are you are you you don't strike me as a type of person who would think this, but are you ever like I wonder if this will, you know, if people will be listening to this hundred years from now? You know, it's it's it doesn't consume me. I, it, I would it, hope not. It, it doesn't it doesn't slow me down. It doesn't it doesn't weigh heavy on my shoulders. That, yeah, that thought. I mean, I can understand how people would think that way because does Mo did Mozart think his music would last? Did, did Tchaikovsky think his music would still be played? Uh, you know, one hundred fifty years, twenty years after his death. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Who knows? Uh, I, I, I'm just writing for the here and now. I'm, I'm writing it because I, it's something that I love to do. It's a passion of mine. Um, I'm fortunate in, in that there are ensembles, there are musicians who are interested in performing what I do, and and not all of them perform it, and that's fine. I mean, mm -hmm. but, but it does get performed now. And, and so I'm writing for the here and now. And whether or not it sustains, uh, I hope so, but I won't be there to know. Yeah, so, so who cares? Who cares? Unless you they know? do that Futurama head in a jar thing. <laughs> and then you that's know? just weird. If it happens, it happens. But but uh, uh, it, it, I'm not going to let it burden how I work. Sure. Yeah. So we're, ta we're talking about the here and now. Let's take me back to when you're younger and you're thinking – this is the thing that I want to do, and I know I can have an actual go at this. How, like, how does one even begin to compose music professionally? It seems like a kind of a once in a million kind of job. It, well, yeah, it is. I mean, it's not. Uh, there's not a lot of composers who who do it exclusively in in Canada. Uh, <clears throat> most composers also have a, a, another job, a day, a day job, job, a day job, if you will. Yeah. You know, most podcasters do as well. <laughs> it's yeah. true. Uh, and uh, most pilots do as well. I yeah. understand. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, uh, it, it's a lot of, a lot of uh, composers are also professors yeah. or they teach music on the side. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I, I, I don't I necessarily have to do that. It's not that I'm against teaching. I, I, I do enjoy teaching, but I've been so busy with, with commissions and work that I've been able to focus exclusively on just staying at home and and getting up in the morning and going upstairs and getting sitting down and working. And that's awesome. Yeah, I mean that's the dream, isn't it? It it, it is a dream. It, it's it's uh, and to answer your question, when when did I think that would happen? I I never dreamt it would happen. You're still not sure it will. I'm not sure. I'm still, <laughs> sure. I'm still waiting for the rap on the door. You know, say, uh, excuse me, but you're not fooling anybody. Get your ass to work. You know, um, <clears throat> but. But uh, you know, it it hasn't happened yet. But but it, I guess maybe when I was younger, I, I was probably maybe about ten, eleven, twelve. I, I listened to a lot of uh, film music. Film music was really what was driving me at that age because that's that was the one outlet that I had, immediate outlet, where you would listen to brand new music that was brandly newly composed for mm -hmm. a motion picture, and, and a lot of the music uh, was really exciting for me and, and I, I thought this is great I just, and I'd go out and buy the soundtracks and, and I could relive the movie in my mind and while well, listening to the music and I, I just loved that experience and it just sort of took took you out of your out of your body you know you might just be sitting there on, in bed with your headphones on listening to the s soundtrack from you know uh, Poltergeist or, or Star Wars or E.T. or you know Star Trek or one of those movies and you don't have to see the movie or at least that's how I felt yeah. you don't have to see the movie because it's like oh yeah I remember that chord because that's when he found out about this and stuff like that and it's, and it's this other experience you know you're, you're sitting there just in your room but 
but you're living a different life outside of your body, and yeah. you know, in your mind. And I, I love the power of music. Now, uh, you had, not to totally interrupt you, uh, you had mentioned before we had some technical difficulties <laughs> uh, that you have, in fact, composed a soundtrack for a film. Mm -hmm. What film, and can we find the soundtrack locally? No. You Darn. cannot find the soundtrack locally, and it did not play at a theater near you. Uh, it was on television, actually. Oh. It, was, it was a lovely little Christmas movie uh, that aired about maybe three or four years ago, and it was shot here in Alberta, and, and uh, uh, it was called The Secret of the Nutcracker, and uh, it was a retelling of um, the Nutcracker, uh, the, the ballet as we know it. And so there was a lot of music by Tchaikovsky in there, and there was a few scenes recreated um, from the ballet. But then they needed a lot of extra music to sort of tie the Tchaikovsky music together and to underscore some of the scenes that where Tchaikovsky's music would have been just too potent or, or not not right. So, so you effectively remixed Tchaikovsky for them. I did a little bit of remixing <laughs> of Tchaikovsky, yeah, a little bit of that. And then I threw in a little bit of my own stuff. And, uh, and But I love that uh, process. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, uh, and I, I think it was one of those times in, in, in my life and when I was writing music where I just felt like things were right. I felt really comfortable about the process. I felt like I had all the tools in the toolbox to be able to really go and, and work on this film and, and, and provide a, a decent soundtrack for it. So something you would do again, I imagine. It's something I would do again. It's not, it's not necessarily an opportunity that's always going to pop into my lap because the, the, the world of film music writing has changed so much in the in the last ten years. I mean, a lot of what's going on. Radio has changed. The you know the music business has changed. Everything has changed, and including f uh, writing music for film. And, and often now producers will will are, are able to get somebody who's in you know a thousand miles from where they are and just uh, have a little decent little studio in their in their house, and they're able to put cobble together a score for a film that's going to be far less than what. Uh, you know, some of the established film composers in Los Angeles would be able to provide. And it's all, it comes down to money right now. It's, and um, anyways, it's, it's all in flux. Yeah. But I'm, 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 I'd be happy to do another one. Uh, and, and, and I hope I, I can do another soundtrack. It, it feels like, um, and it feels like for certainly mainstream filmmakers, th those directors or studios become fond of particular composers. Mm -hmm. So you'll see like, um, I can't pronounce his last name, but Michael G. Jack. Oh, Giacchino. Yeah, who, who's done basically every J.J. Abrams score right. in history. It feels like, in some ways, the, those, the sort of mainstream opportunities are based on who you know and whether well, you're there. It's yeah. collaboration. It's, sure. it's like you were describing earlier with kind of your process for putting together an opera. You work with presumably the same people again and again because you, you know each other. You know yeah. how to work together. You know how to come together and create a story that is told both with the action and with the words and with the music. And I imagine that it's a similar process when you're putting together a film. Yeah, it's, it, it is. I mean, it's, it's the sandbox mentality. Like, who do you want to invite into your sandbox? <laughs> who can you yeah. play with in your sandbox? Because, uh, you know, it, it comes, it, you want them to be fun, you know? And, and if you trust the people that you're working with and you, you, you can work with them well and you do good work with them, you, you want to work with them over and over again. Now, is the is the process by which you compose a score for a film similar to the way you do it with an opera, or are you looking at basically the edited product and putting music to it? Um, it's yeah, it's different. I, I'm looking at with with the film. <clears throat> the music is not necessarily uh, 
telling the, the story entirely. I mean, the burden is not on the music as it is in, in an opera. Mm -hmm. uh, the burden is on the, the director, the film director, and, uh, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, the music there is to support the drama, support the story, and, and, and make sure that, you know, in, in its own way for, you know, for 30 seconds or a minute and a half or whatever it is, it's telling the same story that's on the, on the screen or, or hoping it, that it supports it. With opera, it's, opera is the film. Like yeah. Music is the film. You yeah. know? It's, it's, it's there driving everything. And it's, it's you know, right on, on the first frame to the last frame of the opera, it's all music, right? So mm -hmm. it, it tells something entirely different. And I do approach it differently. With the film, you can sort of jump around if there's, there's different scenes that you want to work on, the longer scenes, you can, you can whip those off and get those done. Uh, I might not necessarily write the, uh, uh, an opera in that way. I might want to start at the beginning of an opera and, and sort of work my way through it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but essentially, when it comes down to it, it's still you and the pencil and the piece of paper. And, and uh, you know, that part is the same. Now, you, you, we've talked about pencils and papers. Mm -hmm. And I've been really curious about this because in our world, technology is made certainly broadcast easier or, or more accessible to um, the people great, like us, the great unwashed. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and it sounds like you're, you are really sitting down maybe at a keyboard or something with pen and paper. Are you using software to help you to develop stuff or is it really? And, and then my other question is, because I'm totally ignorant about, uh, about musical composition, how the hell can you write a piece on piano and then arrange a whole big thing with an orchestra? Because to me, I, I just want to click OK <laughs> on a piece of software and make that happen. Make, it, make this happen. So I guess my first question is uh, to tell, tell us a little bit about the, the, I guess, the technique in your process and whether there's software involved. Yeah, well, I mean, th there are different composers approach things in their own way. And yes, there is software available that, that will help you do, with that. Um, I'm a bit more old school, mm -hmm. uh, but with an eye to technology, and I'm certainly not going to exclude technology if it, if it can help the process. But really, early on, it's about, it's about the music. It's about the, the raw form uh, and, and getting my ideas down on paper because that's how I communicate with all these musicians. Uh, when you get into a studio and you're working with a rock band or, you know, things can be a little more free. Yeah. You know, it's a, hey, play this lick, and a, hey, I liked it when you did that, and let's do that again, and, 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 and uh, they'll improvise off one another and bounce ideas off one another, and they'll jam, and before they know it, there's a song complete, and, and just, the, just a little bit of information might be written down. Other bands might have more information depending on you know how, how de detailed they want to be. Mm -hmm. But when you're working in, in the in the milieu that I work in, with, with that is with musicians who want to read music and want to sit down and want to perform what you have written for them, you have to be able to notate it. Uh, you have to put something on the page. And <clears throat> and so yeah, I, I sit there and I, I I write things out. And I have a keyboard at home. It's I I, I wish I could use a, a real acoustic piano, but I'm way up in the top floor and to get a piano up there would be impossible so I, so I have an electronic keyboard up there and um and i just use that and it's got a piano sound it's got string sounds if you know if i want to experiment with the orchestration i can do that it's got a 16 track recorder on board wow so so i can input different lines uh and hear things back if i want to do that <laughs> and um so so if, if in terms of software that might be something that i might help me now and then if there's if there's a certain com complexity and I can't hit all the notes at the same time or or it's just too fast and I can't play it myself um, I'll I'll use a, a little sequencer and I'll punch it in note by note oh uh, play it in and uh, and then it'll play it back for me 
okay. uh, for complicated stuff. But otherwise, I'm sort of imagining every, everything on my own. Now, the, the famous hit the button and make it sound like an orchestra, uh, that comes from experience. That just, uh, you know, you, you, you compose stuff at the piano, but you just sort of have to know that if you do certain things, it will sound good with an orchestra. And, and how do you get that knowledge? Is it practice? It's or? practice, yeah. It's it's just, uh, some of it is, is experience. Some of it is luck. A lot of it is luck. <laughs> a lot of it is just praying and hoping. And and um, sometimes things work. Um, sometimes things don't. And, and you learn. And you, you don't necessarily repeat things that you don't want to do again. And, and stuff that you know is, is a hit, you might use it again in, a, in the next piece and try something new in the next piece as well. Something that you haven't, a mixture of instruments that hasn't, you've never tried before. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you get that from just experience and from studying other scores. We, I mean, there's there's endless amount of literature out there, fully orchestrated scores that composers have published and left behind, and you can sit down and, and look at them and study, and, and you learn a lot. I love doing that. It's one of the things that I love doing. Is people will sit down and read a book. I'll sit down, I'll get one, an opera out or a symphony that I have. I have a few scores at home, and I'll sit down and I'll put the CD in, and I'll just sit there and follow, listen to the music, and follow along on the score. Really? Just, yeah, I just love doing that. Now, is that is that the kind of music that's always playing, uh, in your house, or or, I mean, obviously you're you're going to listen to other stuff too, but yeah. is that is that the go-to, or is is it some something more like? Pop music. You know, it's it's a mix. Sometimes there's no music at all because if you know if I've been upstairs all day working, <laughs> yeah, that's the last thing you want to hear. Last thing I want to do. You know, it's like <clears throat> uh, you know a dentist at home uh, who's pulling teeth all day. The last thing he wants to do when he goes home is pull more teeth. Yeah, like I want to do something else when I when I have my free time. But yeah, I mean, music will be playing at some point at, at, in the background, and, and it might be pop, it might be jazz, uh, it might be some classical stuff, whatever shows up on the iPod. Cool. Unshuffle. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. This is Adam coming to you almost live from the telephone and networks, and I'm chatting with the venerable Stephen Hodges, who is one of the gentlemen planning the Calgary Expo. How are you, Stephen? Oh, not too bad. We got about two weeks until the show, so we're just scrambling to... uh some last-minute things until we uh, descend upon the masses uh, a wave of full frontal nerdity. So. And uh, has it been a bit of a struggle to plan this year's event, or has everything come together the way that you had hoped? I think a little bit of A and a little bit of B. Um, definitely we had a lot of great surprises when we uh, found out that we were able to reunite the nine principal cast members of Star Trek The Next Generation for their 25th anniversary. That was kind of a, a coup that we were quite proud of. And then recently just re- announcing, I think, Jamie and Oliver Phelps, the Weasley twins from Harry Potter, to replace um, Tom Felton's canceling was kind of an, a pleasant surprise as well, too. So there's been a lot of great surprises. Um, and, yeah, just keeping on our toes and being open to anything the geek gods throw at us. <laughs> and how has uh, how has the publicity around the Calgary Expo been received? I saw that you guys deployed special transporter room bus shelters in Calgary. Is uh, is the excitement building for your fans? It is. It's it's uh, definitely getting crazier. Like um, ever since we announced uh, the principal cast members of the Next Generation to Stan Lee, to Adam West, to Hayden Panettiere, to Adam Baldwin, to 
John Noble and Jessica Nicole. We have so many guests this year. And it's funny because sometimes when I'm talking to the media about them, I always forget who we're bringing in until somebody from the media or somebody interviewing me reminds me. So, But, yeah, you look at Twitter and we're constantly buzzing. People are talking about their costumes or who they're excited to meet. So the momentum is definitely building, and it's going to be a, a great show this year. That's great. Now, tell me a little bit about how um, easy or difficult it is to actually round up these guests. What what sort of process do you and the other uh, organizers go through to figure out who to invite? Well, we definitely listen to the fans, and we uh, we're all we're all geeks ourselves. We're all have a little bit of inner nerd in us, and we're watching what's popular these days and who people want to bring out, we actually go out and ask, like, who do you want to see? And because of the relationships that we have with a lot of uh, the media guests' agents from previous shows, or um, actually the guests themselves also talk about how well they did at our show to their, their friends. So, like, Aaron Douglas, for example, came to our show a couple of years ago, and one of his uh, his deals was, was that if he could get Will Wheaton to come to our show, that we would bring him back. And we said, sure, and him and Will are... Uh, got this little bit of a friendly rivalry on Twitter right now, especially now since their hockey teams are actually facing each other in the playoffs. So they're actually going to be at our show. And depending on who wins the series, the one guest might wear the other team's jersey. So you might see Aaron Douglas, LA Kings jersey, or you might see Will Wheaton in a Vancouver Canucks jersey. So it's mostly the relationships that we build with our guests, with our with the agents, and that helps us get this interstellar talent. Like next year... Um, we have a challenge to be like, how can we top this year? But we already have a few pokers in the fire, and uh, people need to definitely stay tuned after our show ends to figure out what we're going to do next year. That's great. Um, and how do you feel about the way that the Expo has grown uh, in Calgary over the last few years? Is it truly Western Canada's pop culture fair? I'm proud to say it is. Uh, when I got involved in 2008, we were hoping to break 10,000, and we brought in George Decay, and we brought in, I think, George Decay is who I remember. We also brought in Matthew Wood, who played uh, General Grievous in the, the new Star Wars trilogy. So we had a, a pretty decent guest when we wanted to break that 10. We didn't end up breaking 10 that year. We made 8,500, but the year after, we broke 10, and that was a, a mind-blowing thing. And then in 2010, when we brought Spock home to Vulcan, and then we brought Spock to Calgary. We we shattered that record. We did 22,000, which doubled our attendance from the year previous. And last year, having breaking 30,000, and then this year, anticipating 40 to 50 because of our lineup is something definitely to be proud of. Like when you go to conventions in the states, like San Diego or WonderCon or DragonCon in Atlanta, people are actually there's a recognition. When you say the words Calgary Expo, people know, oh, yeah, I heard about that show. You guys do, you guys treat your guests really well. You guys have a really good show up there, I hear. And when you look at other conventions, other conventions in 10 years have achieved the growth that we have in seven. So that's something definitely to be proud of. We are Western Canada's premier pop culture event for sure. And uh, we're, uh, we're gunning for the top there. So look out, Toronto. Right on. Um, are there any uh, surprises that you guys have in store for guests? For me personally, um, this might be the uh, the political nerd in me, but I was pleasantly surprised to see and to be able to chat with Calgary's own geek mayor, uh, Nahed Nenshi. Are, is there anything in the works that uh, that people can 
uh, can get excited about but won't know about until they're there? There, there are, um, but I've been sworn to secrecy. <laughs> of course, to tell you the truth. But we do have a we have, we have a few things in the fire. Definitely something during our uh, TNG exposed event that people might be uh, pleasantly surprised. With that event in itself, is going to be one giant surprise to see the entire cast sitting down and talking about the the show that changed their careers and influenced so many lives. Like I'm not a hardcore Star Trek fan, but I remember watching. The next generation with my dad at like four o'clock on CBS. So there's a lot of those casual fans. There's a lot of trekkers or trekkies that are coming to the show as well too. So we have people coming from all over the world, like as far as Queensland, Australia, to people in Europe, to people all the way down in the states, flying up to Alberta and coming to our show. And we also have to thank the good folks at Edmonton because if it wasn't for the fans up in Edmonton, the, the Yeg geek culture, so to speak, our show wouldn't be as big as it is. And we want to appreciate all the Edmonton folks that come down because we're very much Alberta's show. We're not just a Calgary show. We're an Alberta show. We're Western Canada's show. So, yeah, keep on coming down, you northern Alberta folk. We'd love to have you do so. That's great. Well, we love coming down. And, and if you need uh, anybody to help schlep uh, coffees or danishes to any of the cast of Star Trek The Next Generation, you can always call on the Unknown Studio, Stephen. Definitely. I hear um, that we might have to try to organize a beard off between you and Jonathan Frake. So we definitely have to try to set that up for this year, too. And definitely let your uh, your hundreds or thousands of unknown studio fans um, find out the uh, results of that beard off. Yeah, for sure. It's been it's been many years in the making and I'm excited about uh, about attending this year. It's going to be a great expo. Excellent. Looking forward to seeing you. Right on. Well, thanks for chatting with us, Stephen, and good luck with all the rest of the planning you have to do. Thanks so much. Have a, have a great day. Right on. Take care. You too. Are you looking for current, relevant, highly specialized digital media instruction? You need to seek out The Guru. Guru Digital Arts College offers intense six-month programs that simulate real-world projects. You'll work in small classes in a casual professional environment and meet industry pros who offer a mentor-style approach to learning. Some institutions make the same claim, but with Guru, you'll develop the confidence to get out and become a part of the digital media community. Come visit us anytime. Check out a class, talk with our instructors, and be part of the Guru experience. For more information, email info at gurudigitalarts.com or call 1-877-429-4878. Bad drivers. People complain about them all the time here in Edmonton, but fortunately, there's actually a show that goes out of their way to try to teach bad drivers better, safer driving skills. I'm, of course, referring to Canada's worst driver. Uh, Anybody who's listened to the show for uh, a length of time should know that I'm a fan of that program. And uh, last year, around this time, I had the opportunity to speak to executive producer Guy O'Sullivan, who uh, was getting ready for then that season of the show. Now, he was unavailable this year, but associate producer Meredith Veets was available and was more than happy to take some time out of her busy day to talk to the Unknown Studio about their forthcoming visit to Edmonton to screen more bad drivers for their new upcoming season. So, Canada's Worst Driver, uh, you are on the eighth season. We're heading into our eighth season, and once again, we are looking for the worst drivers in the country, uh, especially Edmonton. Now, why especially Edmonton? 
Well, uh, you know, I have to be honest with you. In the past seven seasons of the show, we have had a disproportionate number of Alberta bad drivers. So we're coming back to sort of where the where where we've hit before and found a lot of bad drivers. Um, and, and we, I guess, we just know they're out there. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? That's true enough. Now, do you do you get a lot of nominee uh, nominations? I should say from uh, not necessarily specifically just Edmonton, but all around the country every year when you put out the call. We sure do. We get uh, nominations basically from coast to coast. And how do you sort through those? What What is the the litmus for what makes you want to go out and see if these people are really as bad as their nominees say they are? Well, we get the nominations and we follow up with every single one with sort of a preliminary phone chat, phone interview. And we get a sense of the bad drivers. Really what we're looking for is a combination of a accident or bad driving history, maybe a lot of tickets, a lot of accidents. We also sort of ask, why is this person, why do they need to get better? How can we help? So um, that's those are the first things. And once we get a sense of their bad driving, the sense of how bad their driving has been historically, we uh, move ahead and set up a time to meet them. And uh, how long does the meeting process take? Uh, how many months do you devote to going out and, and meeting all these people? Well, we have a team that goes out um, to different areas. So I head out west and my colleague heads out east. And uh, we spend a couple of weeks meeting with bad drivers. We set up the interviews ahead of time. So we're not just sort of standing on street corners looking for the country's worst drivers. We do set them up ahead of time. And then we go through a kind of test drive, if you will, on city streets. Now, I've seen some of the footage of the test drives on previous seasons of the show. Yes. And they can be pretty hair-raising. Have there been any moments where you've been fearful for your very lives being with some of these people on roads? I have. It's an incredibly dangerous job. Actually, in uh, in Edmonton, I was with a young guy named Tegan who was on the show a few seasons ago. And we uh, headed out, merging onto the Yellowhead, and came dangerously close to a transport truck. And, uh, of course, I had him take the next exit. And uh, we wrapped up the interview pretty shortly after. So... There's definitely some white-knuckle moments. And have you ever had something happen that was, uh, I guess, so dangerous that you you felt obliged to involve the police in any way? No, actually. Um, we haven't been in that situation. Um, you know, one thing is we're... As much as we, our goal is really to help people become better drivers and improve, and they really get that out of the show, and that's why the show has been so successful, we're not really there to kind of take the law into our hands or take licensing in our hands. At, at the end of the day, we're a television show with um, a, an idea to and, and a plan to help drivers get better, but um, definitely our goal is to involve the police or licensing. It's definitely not um, part of the kind of TV production side of things at all. Which actually uh, leads well into uh, the next question that I have, which came after we interviewed Guy last season for our show, uh, which was, do you guys do any follow-up with any of the drivers who graduate from the program, or worse, who don't graduate from the program? We kind of do phone follow-ups after to see how their driving has come along, um, how they're doing since the show. If they're if for nervous drivers, are they back out on the road? Um, for aggressive drivers, have they slowed down? So we do try to do a little bit of follow-up. Have you ever considered uh, maybe doing, I suppose, an episode or two devoted to follow-up with any of the uh, former bad drivers? You know, you know, Scott, we haven't, but I think it's a great idea. 
well, you can take that one for free. I will not charge you for that idea. Okay, excellent. Well, if you see that on television, we'll uh, certainly credit you. But, no, it would be interesting to see just how much um, people's driving has changed thanks to the show. And and how far they've come because of the uh, the good service that your show does, really. Yeah, I mean, especially for nervous drivers. There was a couple in Calgary that were on in the sixth season, and um, she just actually posted on Twitter, um, you know, out today driving with Brad on city streets and posted a picture. So that's really cool to see because when we first met them, he wasn't driving at all. He was so nervous, and they fought so much in the car. He had actually hung up his keys. So it's so great to see that now they're out driving and doing well. So um, those kinds of stories really make it all worthwhile. Fair enough. Now, uh, assuming that, say, I, I've nominated uh, my co-host, Adam, as one of okay. Canada's worst drivers, and you come out and you follow him around and you decide, this guy is awful, we need to have him on the show. Uh, what what kind of time commitment is it? How long do uh, do the drivers and their nominees end up being a part of the, the program? Well, for the eight drivers selected for the show, um, each one, along with their nominators, flown to Toronto um, for one week in June and then one week in July. So we film um, for a week in June, then we send everyone home for a week, and those who don't graduate actually come back for a second week, for the first week of July. Um, during that time, the show covers all expenses, accommodations, everything's looked after because we want people to be able to do this. It is, you know, at the most, it would be a two-week time commitment. But, of course, because people graduate, they head home earlier. Fair enough. So you, you might not get the full two-week stay in Toronto if you're... You might not need to. Um, you might be able to walk away after just uh, a few days and say, hey, look, I graduated first. Which is... Uh probably a fair trade-off for not being able to uh, stay for the extra week. Exactly. Uh, do you uh, house people on site at the rehab center, or do you have a hotel that you... Uh, they stay in at? a hotel. So they actually stay in a hotel outside of driver's rehab. So they're not, uh, they're, they're not actually staying directly on set. Now, have you ever considered doing rehab uh, elsewhere besides just Toronto? Well, we do it outside of Toronto. Um, we... We have considered it, but just logistically, it's never worked out. So that's why we bring everyone here. We have uh, a great location to do it here that we've been at the, for the past couple of years. And, um, you know, it's it's actually a challenge to find the right location because we need so much space for these huge courses. True enough. Now, I know that uh, one year, and I can't for the life of me remember what season it was, but I want to say it was season two. You guys did a winter driving course. Have you ever considered... Uh, doing a winter driving challenge uh, again at some point in the future? We, we may consider changing up the season. Um, our first season was in the winter. It was and it first was great season. Because, yeah, and in Canada, I mean, it just, uh, all of us deal with that as drivers with uh, bad weather driving and ice and snow. So now we try, even though the show's now filmed in the summer, we do try to have challenges that mimic that kind of winter driving. Um, last season we kind of had a, uh, it was almost like a special uh, material that that was used to mimic ice, so the drivers got a sense of driving on ice, although it was summer. Now, uh, I know that you guys uh, usually wrap up your nomination, uh, I suppose, uh, time period uh, by this point, because you obviously want to get into pre-production for the new season. How would people get in touch with the show in order to nominate one of their friends or loved ones who they think could really get whipped into shape uh, on the city streets? Sure. Well, they can send us an email to driver at propertelevision.com. Right on. And uh, you guys, you said you're going to be in town on the 15th of April? 
Uh, on the 19th. Oh, the 19th of April. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, we'll uh, look forward to seeing you and your crews out here, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to find some of our worst drivers and get them into uh, better driving shape before they hit the street. Sure. Hopefully we can make the roads a little bit safer out there. All right. Well, thank you very much for getting in touch with us and for uh, taking some time out to uh, chat with us about the show again this year. My, My pleasure. You know what we should do right now? Uh, talk about our live show. We should, but first, we should thank our sponsors. Actually, that's not a bad idea. Why don't we do that? Oh, that's better when you bring our it up sponsor. to your... Our sponsor. When you bring it up to your... <laughs> we don't actually have sponsors at the moment. I have I have different sores. What's, why are you looking at me like that? So uh, we'd like to take a moment at this time... <laughs> yes, we would. thank our dear, beloved bosom buddies... At Guru Digital Arts College. Maybe instead of bosom buddies, though, we call them titty friends. Let's thank our titty friends at Guru Digital Arts College for being such a wonderful, uh, for being such a wonderful support to the Unknown Studio. And what do our titty friends do, Scott? They teach people how to pursue a career in the digital arts. It's true. And the digital arts are multifold. They are many. They are any art you can imagine, but digital. It's true, actually. And they will teach you how to uh, transform that into a career, whether you want to do uh, visual arts, like web website design or graphic arts, uh, sequential comics, uh, audio. They have an audio program now. They will give you the skills you need and the real-world applicable knowledge that will translate that into, uh, into an entirely new career. So if you are thinking about pursuing something new, you should definitely head downtown and uh, look for that bearded man known as Owen Brierley. That's right. He is Edmonton's uh, Dumbledore. He has a phoenix. Yep. And by a phoenix, I mean a cockatiel. Yeah. It's name that is, he lights on fire. His name is Chad, and uh, <laughs> it's his seventh because the rest have burned horribly. Uh, but it's nonetheless, probably, <laughs> it's really, really not true. But we should say that their next intake for new students is in July. So this is a great time to uh, look into it. Absolutely. And uh, you can do so on the internet. At gurudigitalarts.com. And if you're really interested, they're throwing an outstanding party in May to which Scott and I have been invited and I have free tickets for us, my friend. It's their uh, gala guru that they've done for, I believe this will be the fourth year, but it's celebrating the 10th anniversary of the school, which is pretty cool. So, uh, yes, definitely give them a give them a holler, check them out, and tell them that their titty friends sent you. Yes. Yeah, th- they won't know what that means. No, they won't. No. But it'll be funny for us. Uh, now, we have a, a sort of announcement. Yeah. On this episode. We do, actually. Um, because um, we don't usually have to announce live dates. But today we do. We absolutely do. The, the, we've, so Scott and I, for those of you who are just joining us and haven't heard about this at all, we decided we were going to do our season finale. And I should say season because I've had two people say, you're not going to do the Unknown Studio anymore? Nonsense. Absolutely we are. We are in our third season. We intend to have a fourth and so on. Yes. So um, we're going to do our season finale live before a studio audience. And you could be in that studio audience. You could be. Now, um, 
before we didn't have a date or a location, but now we have both. Indeed. So the date will be, let me just get a calendar. I have to get this right. It's a Wednesday night, so it is a school night. We don't intend to go too late, but late enough that you might want to put the kids to bed before you come out. And certainly don't bring them to the show because <laughs> I will drop F-bombs. Uh, yes. <laughs> that is a, an absolute certainty. But we are looking at Wednesday, June 27th. Now, you might be wondering where this will be taking place. Scott, where will this be taking place? It will be taking place at a location called Happy Harbor Comics. Well, that sounds delightful. Downtown. Yeah. It is 10729 104th Avenue. Fantastic. And uh, that is where it will be taking place. It's a nice location. It'll be a little cozy. But, but you'll be able to browse stacks of comic books. In between waiting for us to be there and the show starting. Or during when we're talking because it sucks. I just want to manage expectations. Fair enough. Yeah. Now, uh, we don't have the show lined up yet. We don't know who will be our guests at this time. It's true. But we will have guests. It will be as though an episode of The Unknown Studio, including a main interview, broken up by segments, commercial breaks, what have you, from the opening moments to the uh, terrible climactic finale. It will uh, be terrible. With no Henry Twist. No, no. It will be... It will be fantastic, and it will be live. What I, that is what I can guarantee you, folks, is that it will be a live show. There's, there's no question. That is absolutely what we've decided. And, and Scott and I have been trying to bounce around ideas about having live music and who the guests would be. And we think, we think we can get Hillary Clinton. We're going to try. We're going to really try. I, we've got some strings that we will pull. They're, and, they're uh, mostly dental floss strings. But uh, we, will, we will try to get certainly someone of interest, possibly someone a little more local than Hillary Clinton. Possibly. Though I, I, I do believe she summers in Alberta. Nope, I don't believe that. <laughs> why, why would she? Why would she? Be there and experience the Unknown Studio live. It's kind of scary. It's kind of really scary. It'll be glorious. It'll be and, and glorious. Vain glorious. Vain glorious. Absolutely vain glorious. Yes. Now, there's something very exciting happening in May. Uh, you're leaving Edmonton temporarily. 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 <laughs> you're going to New York uh, to watch what you've composed be played. That's right. Now, that is happening where in New York? That is happening at... Carnegie or Carnegie. That's right. <laughs> Carnegie Hall. And it's being performed by the Edmonton Symphony, right? It is. That's right. Yeah. And this is... We're all going down. That's awesome. Yeah. And there's like... It's not like a group of 20 of you. I mean, you and some of your friends are going, certainly. Yeah. But there are dozens of Edmontonians who are going down just to see... Well... Oh, hundreds. They're making a trip out of it. Yeah. Hundreds there's of people. There's hundreds. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when they uh, w- they had a little party to uh, at City Hall to give out the, the tickets, yeah. uh, people's uh, uh, airline tickets and, and the tickets to the show and whatnot, the travel agents were there and they said that uh, when they took on the, this task of booking the, the trip to, Car- to Carnegie Hall, they thought there would be like 60 people going from Edmonton. And it was like, I think they said 900 or 1,000. Holy shit! Bookings that they've made. <laughs> That's in, no. I mean, I'm 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 genuinely amazed. I think everybody is. Everybody was stunned that there was this, uh, and, and they had like buckets and buckets, or like 
uh, the desks were just full of, of tickets uh, waiting for people to come and pick them up. Jesus. And I was stunned by the number of people that are going. And I mean, personally, I know about just me. I think that there's about 30 people that I know personally uh, who don't play in the orchestra or who are not associated with the orchestra at all who are going on their own. Um, and that's just me. <laughs> and so there's, there's quite a few. So is that the allure of a trip to New York? Or, I mean, to me, you have to be pretty passionate about, about the ESO or about this kind of music. And, you know, all, all I ever hear is that only old people like listening to this stuff. Mm. We know that's not true. No, that's not true. So, so is there a generation of, of new up-and-coming patrons of this kind of music? And these are the people that you see when you go to listen to your stuff being played. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a wide mix, you know. There's I, most of the people that I know are younger than me that are going, you know, and and uh, and uh, I I think there's a it's hitting a, a, a entirely different um, uh, generation now, and and a lot of the young ones grew up with music and uh, want to continue to go to concerts. And Edmonton, the Edmonton Symphony does a number of education concerts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Throughout the day, you know, they they might they'll perform at night, but on various weeks in the year during the day, they're entertaining the kids. And, wow! And so a lot of kids in Edmonton grew up knowing about the Edmonton Symphony, and so now they're a little older, you know, 20, 25, 30, 35. They have a little bit of cash, and it's like, hey, let's go to New York, and uh, we can hear the Edmonton Symphony, support the orchestra. Uh, I think there's a lot of pride in this community. Um, it's it it. I, I, I should never be surprised when the community surprises me. You know, it's just, yeah. uh, uh, because on time and time again, th- this community supports their theater, their orchestra, their festivals. The, you know, we're always there. And so it should have been no surprise that when the Edmonton Symphony said, we're going to Carnegie Hall, 900 or 1,000 people are going to say, we're going to. I think that's great. Edmontonians are indeed lovers of the arts. They are. Which a, is a stereotype you don't generally expect. But, no. I mean, we have a thriving arts community in Edmonton. We've exposed it a number of times on this show, amongst other things. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, theater, uh, live music, like bands and such. Yeah. Uh, Art, just in general, with the art gallery. uh, It's been just astonishing to see how, I want to say, cultured Edmontonians are. But it's like we don't wear it on our sleeve enough because it's, it's not the stereotype you generally get when you're like, what? how would you describe an Edmontonian? Well, you hear malls and hockey and all that right. shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, but you you look just a little beneath the surface and holy crap, we're going to the symphony and we're uh, supporting theater and we're uh, going to these uh, fantastic art exhibits that pass through town and, and what have you. And... It's, it's a shame we're not known for that, is basically what I'm saying. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, but we do support the sport teams, right? And and and, um, and in the Grey Cup, if, if Edmonton was playing in the Grey Cup or Edmonton was playing in the Stanley Cup, uh, you know, six, five or six years ago when, when Edmonton, when the Oilers were in the Cup, I, I knew a lot of people who were flying to uh, South Carolina. Is that where they were? I think it was San, was it San Jose? There, it was San Jose, but then they played the... Uh, oh, yes, the Hurricanes, Carolina. Hurricanes. Yeah, 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 that's right. I knew a lot of people who were flying down to see the games, right? I, mean, I guess this is no different. It's 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 slightly different, but the same, you know? Yeah. It's like our home team, our home orchestra is going to play in New York. We are going to see that game, you know? We're going to catch that Now, action. is there going to be a brawl between the Edmonton Symphony <laughs> Orchestra and the New York Philharmonic? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we might be in deep shit. <laughs> I, have a, I have a feeling they're a little rougher than we are. They are rough. I've seen them play. <laughs> that trombone section, you don't want to mess with them. <laughs> um, I, I guess, the, the, you know, I, I find it so interesting because it's not not immediately part of my world, though uh, Rachel and I have talked about um, uh, buying a s- tickets to a series mm-hmm. just because we do think it's something that's really interesting. But again, to your point, Scott, it's not something that I think that generally – most people would assume that Edmonton is known for. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think we um, we have, we're full of surprises. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the um, the pieces of yours that are going to be playing. Are they? What is what is it all part of? Is it a whole? Th- is it an opera? What is it? No, no. Uh, I, I wrote a concerto uh, about fifteen years ago for the opening of the Winspire Center here, okay. here in in Edmonton in nineteen ninety seven, and they commissioned me to write a, a brand new piece. <clears throat> for the orchestra and three soloists, so piano, violin, and cello with the full orchestra. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a triple concerto, and it's about twenty five minutes long. And one piece of music. One piece of music. Holy yeah, <laughs> and um, and it features these three magnificent soloists, and you know who Edmonton have roots to Edmonton, ties to Edmonton. Yeah, and uh, and so they'll be playing the piece and. Uh, there will be two other composers in addition to me who from Edmonton whose music is also go- uh, is also going to be heard in uh, in New York on that concert. Robert Rival, who's the composer in residence with the Edmonton Symphony right now, mm-hmm. and Alan Gilliland, who uh, used to be the composer in residence right after me. Uh, I was there in the '90s, and he followed me. So all three of us in the first half have pieces featured in, uh, on this concert in New York, which is astounding. Most orchestras would would take Tchaikovsky or Mozart or something that uh, you know. That they they know they can play extremely well, and and here, uh, our orchestra is taking music. Hey, this is from our hometown. These guys live with us. They play with us, and uh, they wrote this for us. And this is what we're we're going to do. Now, in the second half, they're doing a piece, uh, a symphony by Martinu, uh, which is not often played either. And uh, I think it's kind of exciting that the orchestra has taken this sort of program that is nowhere near uh, mainstream uh, to New York. It's something entirely different. Huh. Which really is almost better in a way because you can see i don't want to say that see tchaikovsky we keep bringing up we keep picking on that guy i don't want to say that he's like a dime a dozen (laughs) you can go to any orchestra and see them play tchaikovsky but at the same time showing something new and uh something from uh, if you're if you're a traveling orchestra especially something from your home to me stands out more that would that would attract me to go and see that orchestra more than just ho-hum mozart not to say that Mozart is terrible. No, I'm not trying no, to yeah, apply but, that. But it's off the beaten path. And all it's yes. off the beaten Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what, uh, I, I'm, I'm speaking on their behalf, but I think this is what maybe attracted the Carnegie people to, to this program and to the Edmonton Symphony uh, coming to Carne- uh, Carnegie Hall was that they were going to be doing something off the beaten path, music that doesn't normally get heard uh, on their stage. So how many, how many performances of, of, is the ESO doing in... Uh, in New York. Is just, it just one night? It's just one night only. 900 people for one night only. One, well, and that's just 900 people who are yeah, the, from here. That's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, there's, I mean, they still haven't, I think they j- only just started selling tickets in, wow. in New York City for, for the concert. So, and, and uh, the hall takes, I think, like 2,800, I think, or something like that. Wow. So, so there's still room for, for more, and hopefully we'll get some people in town. Some not, like, not like Garth Brooks, who sells out in two seconds. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. maybe they're 58 just, seconds. Is he still Sorry. playing, Garth? Yes. He just yeah. announced uh, he's playing at the Stampede, isn't he? Yes. That's right. Yeah. And uh, That's tickets right. went on sale uh, yesterday to the time that we are recording this. Yeah. At 10 a.m. 
and at 10.01, it was sold out. Are you serious? Wow. That's uh, that said, most of the tickets were bought by scalpers. Yeah. But, I uh, wouldn't doubt. I'm still trying to get tickets for Coldplay. That's, that's on Tuesday. <laughs> that's on Tuesday oh, dear. from the day we recorded this. That's right. <laughs> Thank you, John. Yeah, that was great. By the time you hear this, Coldplay will be gone. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. And John hopefully will have seen them. We'll have seen them, but that's if I want to you know, pay tickets for behind the stage, which I don't think I want to do. But I, I don't think You can watch their back as they play delightful yeah. music. <laughs> I've got your back. Now, uh, so New York's coming up. What, what else is on the horizon for you? you have any interesting projects that you can share with us? Um, yeah, there's a, there's a few interesting little things happening. I just finished uh, a wee little ditty for uh, the Montreal <laughs> International Vocal Competition. And uh, all the singers who are competing in the semifinals uh, have to sing uh, this, this little song that I've written for them. It's about five or six minutes long. Cool. And so, so yeah, so they're bringing me out, and I get to hang out in Montreal for a week and I, I attend these recitals. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I think there's 20 semifinalists, and they whittle it down to the to the uh, four, three or four finalists. So it's a big, it's a big international competition. So no it's kidding. kind of exciting to be a part of that. And I'm currently working on music for the National Arts Center Orchestra, for the Richard Eaton Singers here in Edmonton, our choir here in town. Um, <clears throat> and there's a, a a large piece that I'm working going to be working on uh, next year for uh, choir and orchestra. Wow! Um, uh, something, something Canadian. They they want a very Canadian theme, uh, and so I'm going to be hunting down some poetry that w- texts that would uh, best describe us. If you have any suggestions, I'm trying to think. Like, <laughs> I mean, what is a distinctly Canadian even sound or instrument? I just is it the for some reason that I know that this isn't the right one, but the theme from Northern Exposure is coming into my mind. <laughs> I feel like harmonica, harmonica, fiddle, yeah, ch- yeah, something, yeah, like uh, like a squeeze box, yeah, squeeze box. squeeze box. That feels Eastern Canadian. It feels Eastern, it's yeah. still Canadian. It's, it's yeah. still oh, that's folksy. Right. That's right. It's very Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's folk music. Guitar, guitar is it, whatever. Yeah, it's international. And one of those uh, drums with and the, the yeah the barring yeah, drums yeah. yeah. Um, but but then we have, but I also have to find text because it's going to be sung, and that's that's the the battle right now is to sort of find, uh, you know, th- a text that will fill a thirty minute oratorio essentially. Well, it sounds like you're not begging for work. Well, you know, touch touch wood on your lovely kitchen table here. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's been good. It, you know, the phone uh, rings. A lot less. That's because people tend to use the internet more now. So, I get, <laughs> so now I get more email messages than I do phone calls. Um, but the, the, you know, email or phone, it's I still get requests every now and then. And um, yeah, and there's potentially an opera on the horizon. Uh, another my fourth one, but we'll see. That remains to be seen. Wow. Um, but uh, but yeah, there's exciting work. So if you need someone to write an opera <laughs> or a film soundtrack. Or the soundtrack to your life, which is probably what I would commission you. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of elite lot motif of tuba, to follow you around. Trombone just being like, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great, John. Uh, that's very exciting. And, and we are so glad to have you on the show. Yes. Which, which means that now we're moving into the next part of the show. Is it your favorite part of the show? My favorite part of the show. And what is that called? That would be called the Fast 15. John has listened to bits and pieces of the Unknown Studio, probably just when he misses me. And uh, probably so just bits, probably not as much bits and pieces. Yes. No, I, I, remember, I remember this part. 
Oh, do you? Yeah, I'm, I'm slightly scared now. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. So, so for those of it's relatively you, painless. For those of you who don't know, and just to refresh John's memory, Fast 15 is a rapid-fire series of 15 questions. The first 13 of which are the same questions we ask of every guest that comes on the show, and the last two are wild cards tailored to you, my friend. Okay. Now, uh, my iPad decided to call John Estacio John Estancia. <laughs> and so here is the Fast 15 with Mr. Estancia. <laughs> Number one, your favorite food? Um, Thai. Your favorite color? Aquamarine. Ooh. <laughs> Mac, PC, or Linux? <laughs> or something else? Uh, I, I grew up on Mac, switched to PC, and now crave me to go back to Mac. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, dogs or cats? Kitty cats. You, do you like coffee or tea? Uh, I my I like coffee. My body doesn't. <laughs> That's fair. That's a sound. Yeah, I don't think anyone's body really likes coffee. <laughs> uh, your favorite holiday? Um, beach holiday. Ooh, very nice. Your favorite sport? Curling. <laughs> really? Curling is a sport. I just took up curling. Is that right? Yeah. Outstanding. Yeah, it is now my favorite sport. Great. <laughs> what about a favorite pastime? Um, cooking. Oh, wow. I feel like we should have invited you over. <laughs> uh, your favorite music right now? My favorite music right now. Um, it would have to be the operas of Debussy. Ooh, the so, opera maybe. Something for us to look up. <laughs> there you go. Uh, to the internet. Yeah, that's right. What about your favorite movie right now? Oh, it would have to be Tintin. That was a good movie. That was a good. It I should have robbed. He should have robbed at the Academy you know Awards, what? and I've it raved really about that was. like every episode since the it Academy. It really, Award. really was. It didn't even get a nomination. Didn't even I get a nomination for anything. It, well, it got nominated for I think best original score. It actually. did. That's right. It didn't win that, which astounded me because that's like John was, Williams at a game. He yeah, it was a really good that, score, and but it didn't get a nomination for best animated, and Rango won. And I mean, Rango was okay, Rango but was Tintin fine. was better. But Tintin was was. Way, I mean, I just watched it again. I got the Blu-ray, and it's it looks stunning. It's Damn just it. beautiful. It's really good. And it's, it, it, it's yeah, such a good movie. Okay, so go see Tintin. Tintin. Yes, Tintin. What and then go see the sequel so it becomes a box office smash and they make a third one. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. What about a favorite video game? Zelda. Ooh, <laughs> Scott's wife would be in love with you. She's a very I don't, Zelda I don't play many. I don't, I don't have time for, to play a lot of video games, but uh, Zelda and uh, uh, Draw Something. Ooh, <laughs> everyone's into that right now. That's, that's the thing. That would be uh, something to compose music for, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of kids now that I run into, like for me when I was younger, it was like, oh, I want to write movie soundtracks. I want to write movies because that was like, that was like excitement, right? Yeah. And now a lot of the kids are, students and things like that are, are saying, I want to write for video games. And that was, that's new. Have you seen video games live by any chance? Uh, no, I have not. Fair enough. But I, I have gone. It is quite good. Anita was moved to tears. Because some of the music, and it was the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra, mm -hmm. playing uh, video game music with this touring show with a with a uh, choral backup, and it was it was really good because there's a lot of really really good powerful music in video games yeah. nowadays. So if you do get the opportunity, you should check out video games live at some point. I'm I'm obsessed with a game that I was late to being obsessed with, with regard to the rest of popular culture, but a game called Skyrim that's got hours and hours of, of sort of, uh, you know, score mm -hmm. that's just phenomenal. 
Oh wow! It's really amazing. I'll have to. I'll have to. I've seen you tweeting about Skyrim. Yeah, I'm gonna have to give you uh, some CDs. I think of that. Okay, it's really. I will good. check it out gladly. Anyway, we'll move on. Yes. To the question about if you had a superpower, what would it be? <gasps> oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is interesting. If I had a superpower, the ability. To drink coffee with no <laughs> consequences with from No consequences whatsoever. Um, I would say uh, uh, be able to tell the future. Ooh. Ooh Precognition. That's Precognition. That's risky business. It is because, you know. But then the question arises, if you've seen the future, can you change it? On dun, the next dun, dun, episode. Dun. <laughs> <laughs> you can at the lottery ticket booth. <laughs> I feel like Back to the Future well really made a strong comment about whether we should be doing that sort of thing. Yeah, it is. It did. I maybe that's not the best one. Uh, maybe it is, though. Yeah. So you know what? Actually, no. I want to take that back. Okay. I, 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 because somebody asked, else asked me this question. I remember I had, that was one of the, sec the second answer that I gave because I thought the first answer was boring. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought I could, if, I, if I, could, I could just touch somebody and make them better. If they were sick. The healing hands of Jesus Christ, hands, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Or whatever deity it's you pray the, to. It's the former Roman Catholic in me that I'm probably... <laughs> <laughs> we all have that guilt. <laughs> we do. Okay. On to question 13. My favorite question. Star Wars or Star Trek? Oh, God. He doesn't want to answer. No, I do. It's Star Wars. <gasps> but, but not the last set part of Star Wars. Yeah. The last part of Star Wars. The last. Bad. The last trilogy, it was a cash grab. But I, I love Star Trek. I love, I love both of them. Yeah, he just loves Star Wars a little more. If he had to choose between his children, that's right. He would pick Wars. Oh, that's fine. Adam is just cringing. Okay, all right. We're on to our wild card questions. The first one is, what is your favorite opera or musical? Oh, my favorite opera would have to be, I think, probably Tosca. There's a lot of things in Tosca by, by uh, Puccini. I just love it. It's just over the top. Didn't that just come through town, too? Um, I think Tosca played here a couple years ago. A couple maybe? years ago. Yeah. It's it's yeah. sticking out in my mind. The so. big one for me, that, that or the ones that I remember coming through town most recently, I think, was Madame Butterfly. That might have been done by Mercury Opera. I can't remember. Uh, they Mercury Opera did Madame Butterfly yeah. in Giovanni Cabotto Park this summer under the tent. That's right. Yeah. 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 That cool. was a lot of fun. I went to that. And now, your last wild card question. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite movie score? My favorite movie score. Oh. Yeah, it's all up here. Yeah. It, that one changes, my friend. It changes. Okay, well then yeah. pick a favorite <clears throat> at this moment, um, I guess. At this moment. There's parts of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark which just energizes me. It's just I just love, love, love. And then um, parts of Poltergeist. Really? When I was a kid, yeah. There's just there's elements in that score that are just so fantastic. It's just the rich harmonies, um, which I loved, um, and uh, but then I loved the the Bible epic, the Bible um, epic movies from the fifties, you know, the fifties and sixties, like the Ten Commandments. Uh, yeah, Ben Hur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just you know I just love hearing Ben Hur. Um, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, hmm. you know. Sorry, you just asked for one. No, no, no. You could <clears throat> you could go on and on. And I could fun. go on and on, but these are these are like big chunks of music that I, whenever it's on TV, and I know there's a certain moment coming up, and I'm just flipping channels. I'm like, you'll oh, stop. Yeah, yeah, my favorite part in this score and this film is coming is just popping up. That's awesome. You know, and it's it could be because of the music, or it could be it's usually because of how the music re, uh, interplays with the with the visual, and yeah. that makes it so strong and so potent. 
Excellent. And and draws tears to your eyes, right? There because, you go. because at some point in your in your youth, that's what you grew up with, and then you, you know, and I think that's why people are today drawn to music from video games because that that's that was a big part of their growing up, and, True. and so they they, you know, nostalgia kicks in. And on that bombshell, we end the Fast Fifteen with John Estacian. <laughs> <laughs> and and that is really the conclusion of the show. <laughs> Well, thank uh, you. Well, it was yes. great to have you on, John. It was my no, pleasure. Very Thanks, interesting. Guys. This was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, right I didn't on bore you. No, you didn't. No, it's a, <laughs> at all. It's a great conversation. Yeah, and enjoy uh, enjoy your trip to New York. Thank you. I will. Yeah. Hopefully, a couple hundred more people jump on board. And yeah. Head down. I hope so too. I think a few more will. Right on. Thanks again. Thanks. You've been listening to The Unknown Studio, episode 67. Our guest, John Astacio, pre-production by Adam Rosenhart, post-production by Scott C. Bourgeois. The Unknown Studio is a proud member of the League of Extraordinary Media. You can visit us on the web at theunknownstudio.ca. Thanks for listening. my pieces and uh, I do declare we were not recording I pushed the wrong oh, we have to do you remember everything you just said you right? know what don't worry about it because I had a, a fellow come in and interview me for his thesis oh no that was like an hour and a half and none of it taped <laughs> and he had to come back and do it again the numbers are moving we are confirmed hey Scott yes Adam technology hates me and I hate it <laughs>